1: Welcome to Real Vision. I'm Ed Harrison, and I'm going to talk to Bill Campbell, who is a portfolio manager for Global Bond Strategies at DoubleLine. Bill, welcome to Real Vision, or welcome back. Ed, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, uh, I was telling you before how we're going to do this is I want to start people off knowing that you and I we actually talked and we uh, had an interview that appeared on the platform uh, at the end of May. Based, it was basically a master class in uh, non-us uh, markets which is where you are a portfolio manager and we went you know soup to nuts in terms of currency strategy and bond strategy outside of uh, of the United States and I think people really appreciated that interview um, but you know you you're someone who who's sort of a sort of a big thinker you're thinking about not just what's happening for the strategies right now but what sort of paradigm shifts are down the road? And one of the big ones that comes up to mind, and we're really very interested in that at Real Vision, is digital currencies. So, talk to me about first of all, what is a digital currency from your perspective, from where you sit, uh, and how are you thinking about that?
0: Ed, uh, thanks again for having me back. I, I think that this is actually. Um, a a historic time for global financial markets. Uh, I think that the ideas that are being brought forward by central banks right now and the BIS has been putting working groups of central banks together on how uh, the central banks are going to implement the new uh, central bank digital currencies is going to be a a historic sea change. It's going to be a revamping of the global financial system. And I think, as uh, as international, uh, me as an international portfolio manager, and all of us as uh, you know international investors, it's our job to try to understand as best we can the changes and the potential implications that are coming down the pipeline. Now, these uh, central bank digital currencies have not been implemented yet, mm-hmm. but what we want to do is uh, identify uh, and hopefully be able to you know see in real time. Uh, some of the themes that we're going to discuss uh, throughout this hour, uh, and then when they, if we do start to see the signs that these themes are happening, it can help us position ahead of them. Uh, and you know that's kind of the the basis I think for a lot of the thinking we're doing around digital currencies right now. So uh, I think to understand why I, I just made the statement that I think it's uh, you know really a historic sea change is it's first to understand. You know what is a digital currency, and I think the easiest way to understand it is it's a currency in digital format. It's a medium of exchange, and this medium of exchange uh, can be uh, met by both private and uh, public money. And the, the the medium of exchange happens, uh, you know, uh, on the on the digital side, it can happen through a currency such as uh, Bitcoin. It can happen through a settlement system uh, such as Libra. Uh, but it can also happen through uh, you know transactions on uh, things like credit cards that we uh, you know are all familiar with. and And when we broaden the scope uh, to include all digital payments, which central bank digital currencies are not just that this topic doesn't just focus on the currency itself, which is certainly a key part, but it also focuses on the global payment system. When you include all of that, uh, right now, about 95% of all transactions are being done digitally, and a lot of them are being done via digital platforms, whether it's Visa, Mastercard, a bank credit card. So, in, in a lot of ways, uh, this uh, is uh, the, the the government's behind the you know it's it's kind of behind the starting block, and right. the sector has already led the way on this uh, for years. When we Start to think about how far ahead the private sector is on, uh, you know, just the proliferation of, um, you know, let's call it uh, end-to-end consumer uh, digital settlement use. Uh, th- th- I think this is th- there's not only th- this is not only uh, you know a research fascination that banks should be interested in, but this is a pressing policy need, and it's going to push uh, a lot of new, um, you know, policy and a lot of new. Frameworks and a lot of new market structures into the global financial system, and I think uh, one of the items that uh, you know is starting to push uh, central banks into this arena is the creation of digital money uh, by these private actors. Right. Uh, you know, whether it's Mastercard or PayPal, is actually a liability of that particular company and is not a liability of the government. So now you start to you know creep into Financial stability issues, which absolutely is going to pull the financial authorities into, uh, you know, this discussion. So this kind of opens up uh, a little bit more of a. I know this will be a little bit more of a theoretical side of what is money, and really, money should be a public good. It is a public good, and it should be a liability of the central bank. It should be a medium of exchange that is legal tender for each economy, and uh, you know, right now. Uh, you know, for example, Amex is not its not accepted everywhere, but the dollar is. So, yeah. um, when central banks first introduce the digital currency, uh, basically, it's just going to be a replacement of the currency as we know it—the paper, uh, you know, cash bills that we receive from the Federal Reserve and use as currency. It's just going to be that in digital format, in its simplest form. Uh, but it's a little bit more profound because it now will be a liability of the central bank. It will be legal tender, uh, you know, for each economy. Uh, not only the U.S., but each economy is going to, you know, implement their own digital currency. It has the, you know, It has then the property of a store of value. Uh, I know there's a lot of discussion on the store of value and. Whether you know, some of the new private coins can meet that standard. And I would argue that uh, you know, the private coins are still too volatile and they're still a little bit uh, too much in their infancy to truly meet that standard. Although I'm sure that you know, there are some uh, you know, very sophisticated people who might want to take the other side of that argument. I just propose that uh, you know, given uh, you know, where we are today with all of the private coins that are issued. Uh, you know, that volatility uh, makes the store value question a little bit more open. And also it needs to be a common unit of account. And it's not clear that, you know, we have a standard uh, on the private side that is the common unit of account. We still always go back to, you know, what is the central bank's, uh, you know, uh, currency? What is the central bank's, uh, you know, uh, the, what is their back liability is our common unit of account uh, across each nation?
1: The one question I think that stuck, uh, that sticks out for me is, is when you were talking about, uh, uh, be- even before you started talking about the, uh, the currency of account, uh, uh, I was thinking about, you said that it should be or has to be a liability of the, uh, the state. Why is it that we can't have some sort of free-for-all where different currencies are competing against each other, you know, issued by different private actors? You know, all competing against state money at the same time. How is that not a good outcome for uh, going forward? Well, you can, and we are right now.
0: But ultimately, uh, you're introducing uh, the credit risk of an individual company, uh, you know, can uh, either be worse or better than that of a state. And I think, you know, you bring up a very profound point. when we think about, uh, I, I think the uh, you know the idea of Libra, like this end-to-end payment infrastructure, is kind of interesting because you know it's backed by uh, you know a company, uh, you know a, a very strong company like Facebook. And when we you know think about uh, you know major countries. Uh, you know, I think the you know the the liability of those governments, uh, you know, or of those central banks, you know, are very strong and probably stand up stronger. But when we start to move into emerging market countries, and I know we're going to get into a lot of uh, you know these issues about uh, you know institutional strength and you know trust in the government, uh, all of a sudden when we do the credit analysis. You might get into a situation where uh, you know you do have a private, uh, you know, end-to-end system like Libra, uh, you know, being preferable to uh, you know a state currency. So I think that uh, what the the situation you described is the situation we're in today. Uh, I I'm not making the argument that uh, you know one one uh, particular path, the central bank digital currency, is the you know the path uh, that you know stands above all. I'm merely pointing out that uh, you know uh, in this in, in the in the sy- in the global system right now, uh, you know uh, that we we're going to see a, a complete revamping of the way people I think do credit analysis and look at uh, you know countries versus private alternatives. So. Uh, There are a lot of twists and turns to come, and uh, you know this is obviously uh, one area to keep an eye on, especially uh, when it comes to markets outside the United States.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, let me ask you a second question because I was actually looking at some of the notes that you had taken before, and one of the things that stands out for me is uh, that you say that ninety-five percent of money is already digital, and I was thinking about this in regard to libra and uh, and and state money what you know i get i get the impression that central banks see libra as a threat in some capacity suddenly we, we hear about the central banks definitely now saying okay now is the time to get into digital currency whereas we're already at the point where 95% of all money is digital what was the impetus? What was the thing that really you know got the light bulb on for them that we need to get on top of this?
0: Well, I, I think there there are a couple of items that uh, you know have potentially uh, you know turned uh, focused their attention uh, into the digital you know arena. Um, you know, one is obviously that the you know majority of private uh, transactions are uh, settled digitally. Um, you know the uh, the, the other uh, item is when we think about uh, you know where central banks are today, we've kind of uh, there, we've reached a limit, really, as far as exhausting uh, you know the traditional policy toolkit of using interest rates to try to set monetary policy. The uh, you know unorthodox monetary policy toolkits of you know uh, buying uh, both government bonds, private bonds, in some cases equities. And, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a historic crisis of, uh, you know, COVID, where right now we're starting to see uh, a lot the second wave of lockdowns come through Europe. And I think you guys have done a good job of, uh, you know, covering that issue. There's also the concern that structural unemployment might be much higher going forward, you know, given the proliferation and pull forward of a lot of technologies and the disrupting of supply chains that are happening due to the coronavirus. So um, we're at a historic point on the policy side, whereby central banks' toolkits have been exhausted, and this would actually potentially provide a new tool for them uh, you know, in order to affect uh, you know, the, what we've seen right now is uh, central banks and have been asking fiscal policymakers to do more. And we just finished the IMF's, uh, you know, bi- uh, biannual meetings, and I think what we saw is uh, an interesting uh, message change uh, from the IMF, whereby they're telling countries, if you have room, now is the time to use it. And there's a discussion about using uh, these extraordinary monetary policies of, you know, bond purchases and yield curve controls to effectively subsidize fiscal policy. And then we get into all sorts of issues around how is fiscal policy going to be implemented. And that's where the digital currency, I think, offers that new potential policy toolkit of being able to go that final mile, allowing central banks to not only provide uh, currency and liquidity to the banking system, which it currently does, but it will now be able, through a central bank digital currency, to provide that to the individual. And let me just slow down for a second here. With the quantitative easing that's happening, basically what you see is central banks are purchasing assets from, uh, you know, the private banking system. But then they credit their reserve account, and it's up to the banks to decide how they're going to allocate those reserves to the real economy. Are they going to buy a financial asset and market make? Are they going to give a loan? And unfortunately, what we've seen is that uh, that credit creation really uh, isn't happening, and we've seen the you know velocity of money fall, uh, you know across pretty much all economies. We've seen uh, you know uh, inflation not take hold, which you know has other structural reasons, but one of which would be you know this hurdle of getting the all this excess liquidity that's sitting in the banking system out to uh, you know the end uh, public. Who, uh, when we look at the end public, especially the lower income parts of a society, are likely to spend more out of necessity. They save less, and right. they spend the money that comes in. So that it's that final policy tool that I think is, uh, you know, it, dur- it's it, it's a creation of a new policy tool, a potential for new policy tool, uh, in the middle of this crisis, whereby. You know, a double dip, uh, you know, recession, uh, at least in uh, you know internationally, is not is something that we just can't completely discount and say that's not going to happen, and um, I think that uh, you know, beyond just the need for uh, central banks as you know the monet- as the financial authorities. To you know, kind of get ahead of all the private infrastructure that's put in, put in place for you know digital payments and this uh, you know digital financial infrastructure. You also have the policy needs that are you know also creeping in to you know really create the motivation for you know this point in history to be why your central banks are going to be forced into you know implementing this. And you know as we're I know we're going to get into. A lot of the implications of you know what some of the choices might mean for economies, but I, I really believe that this is coming right down the pipe. And as we've seen, the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan are already in comment period. I know they're trying to say, well, you know, we're trying to take our time. Jay Powell is saying, you know, we're we're taking our time, but we're watching. And he sat on a panel with the BIS, which tells you that this is a area of uh, focus and a highlighted area. Uh, you know, for all the world's major central banks.
1: You know, I really appreciate the neutral tone that you give that in terms of uh, putting it out there. Uh, but I, I want to inject a, a, a certain uh, skepticism into all of this. Let me let me read something to you. Actually, uh, th- uh, let me. Here's the quote that I want. The, it goes like this: "Quote, uh, the acute phase of the credit crisis ended years ago." giving way to nearly a decade of global economic growth. The central banks, however, have lacked the courage to unwind QE. That quote is from a gentleman by the name of Bill Campbell. It is from the year 2018 in a double-line piece called Quantitative Easing, Welcome to the Hotel California. And I think the implication there is, is once you have the tools uh, you you kind of want to use them, and uh, and and not unwind those tools. We're in an, a completely new paradigm potentially. Uh, when you talk in that way, we've gone from uh, reducing interest rates to asset purchases with quantitative easing, and now you're saying that we are potentially going to the new paradigm of digital currency. That's right. So,
0: uh, well, thank you for pointing that uh, that quote out. Uh, I think it was obvious to see that, you know, the the, the fact that uh, you know central banks gained those new policy tools, and they always said that you know they understand the economy, uh, you know, better than uh, all of the rest of us, and they'll be able to unwind extraordinary policy. Uh, you know, always seemed like a fantasy to me because when we you know did see opportunities for them to. You know, take that off-ramp even marginally. They never did, and uh, I think that that's basically where we're going with this uh, policy. With with the potential is that you know, with the implementation of central bank digital currencies, uh, we can get into this quasi-fiscal aspect. And I I think it's very hard to roll back. uh, You know, any any you know, what the old saying of. You know, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government policy. I believe Milton Friedman, uh, you know, said it best, and it, you know, it's absolutely right in that sense. So, it's coming now. Let's think about, uh, you know, what what are the potential implications of, uh, you know, the digital currency, uh, central bank digital currency rollout. Um, you know, the first thing is uh, there's going to be a lot of tensions, as you know, with any. Uh, you know, government, uh, you know, uh, step forward or reach into the private sector. There's always tensions, uh, you know, that arise. And the first one is with, uh, uh, and the most obvious one is with the banking sector. So, um, you know, the central bank digital currency right now, effectively, uh, many people may not think about this, but the central banks actually do have a form of central bank digital currency that's already out there, uh, you know, in bank reserves. So bank reserves are custodied at the Fed. They're, you know, uh, able. It, it, but it, the the problem is they're they're kind of like a wholesale currency. They're stuck uh, in right. the banking sector. But when you think about what is a banking reserve, it's a preferred asset. Like it's, you know, deemed as one of the safest assets, uh, you know, in the banking sector that you can have. And you know, a lot of banks want to have it, uh, you know, for uh, safety reasons. Uh, you know, uh, to keep themselves well capitalized. Well. Let's take that now one step when uh, you know one step further with the introduction of a digital currency to the private uh, to you know to private depositors, uh, you could end up in a situation where financial stability be- could become uh, you know at risk, as th- there could be a preference for people to say, "Hey, I, I would actually uh, you know prefer to have all my assets uh, you know custodied uh, you know at the Federal Reserve." So. One of the questions right now is, will central banks allow individuals to have custody accounts, demand deposit accounts at the central bank? And Loretta Mester actually said, you know, look, there is some legislation that's looking at that, you know, as a as a worst case scenario, that we may have, uh, you know, a situation whereby, uh, you know, we need to provide payments to individuals and, you know, potentially, uh, you know, we could pass legislation that would then mandate that all people have you know an account at the fed but i think then you get into this issue that you know you could have a preference you know for you know assets being custodied at the fed versus at you know deutsche bank or you know bank of america or jp morgan which then starts to create you know issues for you know those banks as they would lose you know their deposit base you know then then you say well you could have, uh, you know, you could walk yourself down the line where you say then nationalizing banks in that situation would make sense because now the government's going to provide, uh, you know, the credibility that those institutions, you know,
1: will, you know, custody those assets safely. When you mentioned Loretta Mester, I think she's supposed to be considered a hawk. She's the president of the of uh, uh, Cleveland Federal Reserve. The the in, the thing that you introduce just makes me think. One of the things in 2008 that we were talking about was uh, the fact that a lot of these investment banks were re- relying on wholesale deposits. You know, Goldman Sachs and, and the likes, they've gone out and they've actually tried to attract deposits. But you're suggesting that, actually, if, if we take uh, a supposed hawk at the Federal Reserve's position, in a worst-case scenario, the Fed would be competing with those banks for deposits,
0: correct. Yes, and that then uh, puts into question the entire system of uh, you know uh, fractional reserve banking. So this hasn't been implemented yet, but this is a risk that if we see uh, you know all of a sudden the uh, architecture come out that central banks are saying we're setting up uh, you know citizens' custody accounts, I think we need to. You know, take a hard look at the banking sector. So I point that you know out as we discussed at the beginning. You know, what are some of those signposts and implications? Let's uh, you know that that's something to just tuck away. And if we start seeing that, uh, you know, that that's a potential you know signpost and implication uh, that maybe we could uh, you know then take advantage of uh, in markets. Um, you know, we also need to think about credit disintermediation. Mm-hmm. Um, so. There's, there, there are a couple of things that, you know, come to mind, uh, you know, the use of, uh, you know, Visa and MasterCard and, you know, all of uh, just the traditional, uh, you know, electronic payment systems that we use, uh, we all use it. You and I, uh, you know, all the way down, like a- across the um, borrower spectrum from strong borrowers to weak borrowers, we all, uh, you know, use credit cards and, uh, you know, some of us pay it off quicker than others, uh, but you could see a situation whereby, uh, you know, if you have, you uh, know, very strong borrowers that, you know, say, you know, I I really don't want the fees associated with, uh, you know, Visa and MasterCard. Um, And I I think my preference would be, uh, you know, to pay everything more on a debit card basis. Uh, You know, you could have a situation whereby, you know, the interest rates that are already high uh, you know for carrying balances on Visa and MasterCard go way up because that final element of subsidy of the stronger borrowers in the system disappears uh, there there's some good aspects uh, you know of, uh, of credit creation uh, you know that are happening as well I have seen the idea that you know um, using private uh, you know the, the private sector technology of you know security tokens can help, uh, sectors that have not received credit, such as small businesses, potentially you know start to receive uh, you know more credit, more funding. And I think actually you have a, 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 another video that goes deep into detail uh, you know on that. So that that's a potential positive uh, side. And I think one of the uh, issues I pointed to of the current central bank policy is uh, what have we seen since March is we've seen the majority of central bank liquidity go to either wealthy individuals through asset price appreciation or go to large companies as debt has been issued by corporations and it's really left out uh, you know the small business, uh, you know in the the, the the small business sector. So that that's kind of an interesting innovation that you know could actually boost potential growth in uh, countries that are able to effectively do that correctly. But part and parcel to just that little element would be, Uh, you know, how governments set up the domestic payment system, Uh, you know governments are going to get more involved. And, uh, you know, I think what's ultimately going to happen is they're going to increase operational efficiency, uh, both internally and externally. And, uh, you know, you're going to see, you know, a lot of uh, these larger transactions that, you know, banks now facilitate, uh, you know, become much more commoditized and much more, much easier, uh, you know, to do in you know either new government payment systems and new uh, you know private structures, and that's going to disintermediate uh, you know a revenue source uh, from banks as well. Who especially for you know large cross-border M and A activity, uh, you know for the final uh, you know payment settlements. I think that you know there's a big big potential for the new architecture that's coming in with these uh, central bank digital currencies and the. You know, and their uh, companion payment systems to displace banks in that, uh, you know, in that in that area of credit creation as well.
1: I think this is a good uh, time, a good example uh, to talk about some of the implications for the investor before we go on to more. Because as you say that, immediately I think to myself about uh, how do you implement this in Argentina. Uh, what what are the implications in Argentina in terms of legal tender, public good, uh, common unit of account, and the competition of this digital currency with private digital currencies? And then what happens? How do you, as uh, a global portfolio manager, think about this new world that we're living in the country risk associated with Argentina could you maybe give an exa- use that as an example
0: well uh, you know it's a very so so that's a very deep uh you know a, a very deep question that you just asked i think uh you know uh initially um you're going to end up uh in a situation uh you know whereby the like Argentina, is it? Argentina, I think would be a difficult example because you already have a lot of exchange rate controls that are put on the country, uh, and uh, you know the ability for uh, you know money to leak out and new platforms to get in is uh, is very controlled. As is uh, you know with China, and um, I think ultimately we're going to end up in a situation where you're going to look at countries and start to say. Okay, uh, institutional strength becomes a major factor of uh, you know how we're evaluating the country, and what I mean by institutional strength is you know uh, the government's uh, ability or lack there or willingness not to monetize deficits, the government's protection of privacy rights, and uh, you know the also the government's willingness and ability to keep an open capital account to mm-hmm. allow you know, money to both, you know, come in, but also, uh, you know, to leave and maybe go to either another public platform or a private platform. So countries with lower institutional credibility, obviously, you know, are going to face a balance of payments risk similar to, you know, what we're seeing right now. And the digital currency, uh, you know, could work in, uh, you know, one of two ways. My concern is that it gives a much stronger, uh, access to the government in all payments and all financial transactions, which then gives them more control and the ability to you know prevent capital and savings from leaving that country. So uh, you know in one respect, I think you could see a situation whereby uh, you know if used incorrectly uh, or if used for you know purely domestic political gains, there's the risk that it could increase the inequality issue because country uh, because capital that's already trapped in a weak system would then get you know even more so and though you would get into a very much a haves and have nots. so people with the wherewithal either you already have existing savings outside of the country or you know you have through political favor could get savings out you would be in a preferable situation uh, you know compared to uh, you know to that domestic capital but um, I think more more to the point like getting back to kind of the You know, it's institutional strength, and uh, you know the uh, you know how we're thinking about uh, you know uh, countries going forward. I think that you know the these new payment systems uh, that central banks are looking at are going to uh, you know there's a there's a big question about negative interest rates, and uh, Mm -hmm. you know can the policy uh, you know can can, um, governments try to affect outcomes by saying basically we're going to tax. Uh, your your cash, basically, the, the value of your cash is going to start disappearing through time if you don't use it. So this is, uh, you know, th- this is, uh, you know, and I know, uh, there, there's been a lot of research into, you know, why it would be a great thing, you'd increase, uh, you know, the velocity of money and all the rest. But I think this is a very uh, dangerous uh, idea. And it's going to first of all, uh, you know, it's a tax, like, right. well, let's just start out with that. Uh, you know. Secondly, uh, it creates the real need for a new safe asset and a safe digital asset. So, if you think about the that your your demand deposit now, uh, you know, it now can just start dwindling over time. Uh, any savings you have, you're going to have to invest in something, right? You're going to have to get it out of the cash, you know, like out of this digital cash system, as quickly as possible. So obviously, you have bank risk there that you know uh, demand uh, demand deposit accounts, uh, you know, might be moved. Now, this might be where banks could get creative and offer like their private, you know, uh, cash demand deposit account, and then create a preferential treatment to try to regain, you know, some assets. But uh, you know, barring uh, barring that, if we're in a situation whereby people are char- uh, governments are charging negative interest rates on cash, I think. We're probably in a situation whereby government bonds, uh, you know, are no longer, you know, yielding a positive rate, likely, or at least they're at their lower bound and unlikely to provide you uh, protection in risk off, in a risk-off scenario. So
1: that, that's yeah. a big point. And it, uh, why is that that they wouldn't provide protection in a risk-off scenario?
0: Well, once the effective lower bound is hit, it, it you know cannot rally any you know that the idea that the government that you know developed market government bonds and treasuries are kind of the last safe asset on the world is, you know, due to the fact that you think that, you know, there still is room for capital appreciation or enough money is gonna go into the government bond market to, you know, cause rates to rally and you know make that security appreciate in a time of risk off. And I think this is actually uh, you know, a very Uh, Important point. We're discussing, uh, you know, one of the discussions that, you know, is kind of permeating the market right now is the 60 40 portfolio. And, you know, government bonds have historically been viewed as that risk hedge in that 60 40 portfolio. Well, I just discussed the need for a new safe asset. And I've heard a lot of discussion. Well, you know, uh, right now what I'm hearing is gold and Bitcoin are two natural candidates, maybe to, uh, you know, replace treasuries in that 60/40 portfolio. And what I would say to you there is my opinion is that gold and bitcoin are debasement assets. And uh I say that because when I look at vo- scenarios where volatility spikes. And this is uh you know let, let's let's put bitcoin out for a second and just stick with gold in 2008, you know, in eight, when we had you know, the true volatility spike, you had the deflationary scares whereby break evens rallied much more than nominals and caused real yields to push up. What happened there? Gold sold off. In sure. March, we saw similar with flash in the pan of that, that exact same scenario, vol spiked. And what happened? Gold was actually sold. So in a 60-40 portfolio, that safety asset is supposed to offset the fall in the you know risk-on asset uh, in those spikes of volatility, but what actually ends up happening in the case of gold is gold doesn't rally until you get the commensurate or you know the follow-on of the central bank or fiscal authorities you know then implementing a massive stimulus measure. So in effect, it's not trading the vol trade, it's trading the debasement trade. And when I look at the Bitcoin correlations with risk assets during, uh, you know, risk-off environments to 2018, March of uh, 2020, I see a very high correlation to the way gold behaves in those. That it, uh, you know, appears to me that it's trading more the debasement risk rather than like the volatility deflation, uh, you know, uh, risk that you're you're trying to get. So. Right now, with government bond yields hitting their effective lower bounds across developed markets, and uh, with the risk that you could implement, uh, you know, uh, a negative rate policy on cash when central bank digital currencies are implemented, creates that need for a new safe asset. And I don't know what it'll be, but it's right. got to be, you know, a digital safe asset that, you know, is usable by, uh, you know, by most people.
1: Let me uh, riff on that in a, in a bunch of different ways, if possible. You know, I don't know if you know, I spoke to Ben Anker, who's at uh, a GMO. Uh, he's, oh, a, yeah. he's their asset allocator. Uh, people would call him the um, heir apparent to Jeremy Grantham. And he was writing up about the fact that actually you can see from that March event that the negative yielding countries, uh, there was no offset. Uh, to, in their 60 40 portfolio as the market melted down. So you had the huge vol spike, uh, equities were plummeting, and actually those negative yielding assets did nothing. And sometimes they actually added to your pain. Whereas only in uh, the countries that had positive yields, and those positive yields were very minuscule and have reduced since then, did you see any sort of offset. So we're at a point now. Uh, where we don't have any offset uh, across the developed economies. And that means that the full force of the vol spike that is caused by, you know, declining asset prices on on uh, risk assets is going to be felt in in, in an individual's portfolio if they're 60-40. Um, the, the thing that I find interesting is this, uh, also this, this, uh, this negative interest rate uh, part that you were talking about. I immediately thought to myself about the tax uh, on uh, you know, because you were talking about the digital currency negative interest rate, that's actually a tax. We're seeing that tax right now. Um in real time, we're seeing in Europe that they're trying to implement at a very modest amount negative interest rates. and it does not seem to be, creating that increased velocity of money that you, you would want to see so when people are talking about policy implications of this tax how do you think about negative interest rates in terms of its ability to actually you know do what people want it to do
0: i think that negative interest rates do not stimulate growth and inflation and I'll uh, I, I think that uh, I'll pause for dramatic effect. But that's I, I think that that is uh, at the heart of it. Um, you're, you're you're coming to you get to a situation where people you know all of a sudden are I, I've heard you know uh, some very smart people start to you know say negative interest rates on uh, you know what were safe assets. I just want to find the least negative interest rate because it still you know helps store value. In a situation whereby you know growth remains uncertain, and uh, you know I I don't uh, necessarily want to put all my money uh, you know to risk in the credit markets or the equity markets. So it's almost like an insurance uh, you know premium that that you're paying, and it's a shame, but that's you know uh, that that's where the world is. Uh, governments have been able to get away. Uh, now, with uh, you know, charging their te- you know, effectively implementing a new tax on their population, uh, you know, and they're implementing policies that just aren't working. That you know aren't proving to generate the reflationary you know, strong growth and inflation impulses and wage increases that uh, you know all of these policies uh, you know are targeted at. Um, I think when we you know think about the construct that you just laid out, you know there there still probably is you know one more you know one more act left in you know some of some developed markets, you know government bonds in the face of another you know a second a double dip or you know a second you know recession because there are some you can find you know some slightly positive rates you know across the globe and. Uh, what we've also seen is, you know, the back end of the curves uh, generally uh, don't really go too negative. Uh, they don't really try to test negative until the central bank breaks that uh, breaks that floor, right. and then the then you tend to see, you know, uh, a rally, uh, you know, in government bonds, you know, in, in, into negative rate territory, which is kind of that one final, uh, you know, one last, uh, you know, act, as I say. And I'm thinking like. The UK, Australia. Hey, by the way, we have those areas.
1: If you talked about uh, specific uh, policy, uh, you know, just from an investment perspective, I'm thinking immediately UK when you say that because that's an asset. Uh, the guilt that it's been it's been toying with the negative. Uh, however, the UK central bank hasn't said that we're definitely going to go negative. We're just thinking about it. Right. But you're saying that when they actually do go negative, that then you have another uh, potential for price appreciation from actual negative on the duration right. aspect of, of, of that uh, safe asset.
0: Correct. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I'm saying, and I I'm using the uh, I'm using the German Bund as a playbook with the ECB. You know, for that, that basically once the negative policy rate, uh, you know, is implemented, once that Rubicon has been crossed. You have the the long end of the curve has one potential, you know, last gasp of, you know, capital appreciation or rally left in it. Um, but we're we're effectively, you know, if that's it, then that truly is, in my opinion, it as far as traditional, non traditional monetary policy forcing central banks to, you know, revamp the tool and cross into this quasi. Fiscal, uh, you know, policy space, which you know they they've already done, but I do think that monetary inflation can absolutely come back. Inflation caused just by the increase in money supply, uh, you know, by uh, you know central banks first implementing digital currencies ability to put you know uh, government cash in people's bank accounts. But then we got to ask ourselves: you know, this is the deficit spending versus debasement uh, discussion, and uh, you know, the question is, uh, what type of authority then is given to central banks when this, uh, you know, new plumbing has been put in place? And I think it really matters that. If the new policy being put in place is funded by government spending, tax increases, and there's you know the fiscal offset to it, uh, you know, that, then it, it's kind of a new fiscal uh, policy tool. I think the real concern and the real risk is that uh, you know we'll see a situation whereby debasement happens, and central banks will merely print the money to uh, you know go directly into individuals bank accounts without you know the you know the offset on the sovereign government side from the fiscal you know the fiscal authority of the sovereign government this is a big distinction subtle but big because then that's outright monetization right we've seen a little bit of like testing of monetization uh, on central banks and uh, you know the and governments the uk has the ways and means facility But you know that's a direct payment. You know it's kind of like an overdraft account that uh, you know the the UK government can use. But they the way they take money from the central bank to you know fund a current emergency program, Uh, but then they promise to pay it back quickly. Uh, you know, you're seeing Indonesia do, you know, direct. Uh, you know, you're seeing that they're getting around it by saying, "Well, we're issuing a note to the central bank that the central bank could then, you know, sell to the market. We promise that, you know, it's a, you know, a, a priority claim that we'll we'll pay it back as well." But we're seeing like these tests of the boundary. Uh, you know, for is this deficit spending or is this true debasement? Right. And I think that that is such a, a slippery slope in that line, that hard line that has been in between the fiscal versus the central bank, you know, the fiscal versus monetary authorities. It has been eroded over time through you know, the quasi-fiscal you know, help from quantitative easing, yield curve control, and all of these policies. We are starting to see little tests you know, here and there, and it is, again, emergency use only. These, this is just an emergency case. Don't worry about it. Look somewhere else. Uh, it, it's this is something to keep an eye on because this would, in my opinion, uh, you know, open the floodgates to monetary inflation. Uh, you know, where it, you, know, you you really start to see you know the it, it inflation is you know uh, it starts increasing because of uh, you know true money printing and debasement, and this is where I think Bitcoin and gold can absolutely. Protect you, uh, you know, in those, you know, in these scenarios. So I think uh, I just wanted to separate out, you know, that my my thinking on that. Uh, it, it, you know, I just wanted to make sure I clarified that, you know, uh, I I want I want I think investors need to be very clear about the risk that the asset is trading to. Mm-hmm. So right. you're putting your portfolio together, uh, you don't you're you're not counting on it to do something that maybe it's not quite doing. right.
1: And you know uh, the way that i'm um, uh, f- I would, I'm framing in my mind what you're saying is is we have two policy options here uh, when we're we're thinking about quasi or actually outright fiscal policy from the central bank. The one that we first talked about was uh, going more into the negative interest rate, the tax the tax that we're already doing with regard to negative interest rate policy. But you can move from there to a much more sort of debasement type of strategy where you just credit accounts that the the central bank is engaged in the deficit spending, so to speak. And that's a completely different scenario where uh, you know you can the, the the central bank rather than just giving money uh, to banks uh, who have assets and then hoping those banks will, Move those assets to the right places. They're saying, actually, we're going to target specific places. We're going to credit specific accounts and directly impact, impact the private sector that way.
0: Right, and that is such an important and well. Th- this whole discussion, I think, has been important. And again, it, th- all of this is so new that there's so many different avenues that we can dive into. Uh, you know uh, in, the, in the rollout of central bank digital currencies, but what you just discussed, the ability to target outcomes. Uh, you know that opens up in my mind. We, again, it, it kind of wraps us back around to you know the institutional strength but a privacy discussion. And in order for central banks to target outcomes, they need visibility into where exactly the currency is going and the payment infrastructure. And uh, you know, I think the privacy concern comes as to, uh, you know, what what type of visibility do we as citizens want to give to the government as far as you know all of our digital payments? So let me just give a quick example to kind of highlight what's going on there. Uh, the central bank could print a digital currency and then could allow a private bank to use some of its reserve assets, by the digital currency, and then that private bank can distribute the you know, digital currency the way it sees fit. And all of those transactions then would reside on a server at the private bank, such as Bank of America. And you know, if there's a concern of taxation, money laundering, or, you know, whatever else, uh, you know, that the, the government would have to first go to court, get a warrant, and then uh, you know, obtain those assets from a private party being uh, you know, Bank of America in this example. On the flip side, uh, if you really want to be able to target outcomes, what happens if the, you know, all of that information resides at the central bank on a government server? Uh, you know, now you really, really need to have confidence that the judiciary is going to protect personal privacy rights. Because uh, you know, the, 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 the um, potential for abuse is very high. Right. Uh, but in order for, now, this is the trade-off. I think in order for them to be able to implement the outcomes that you were talking about, they, they need uh, you know, that type of visibility. So this, is, uh, you know, th- this then becomes uh, you know, a situation whereby country by country, we can start to say, uh, you know, does this country actually, you know, protect individual privacy rights? Do they have that type of strong institutional strength? And, you know, getting back to potential market implications, uh, it, I, would, I would believe that countries with stronger privacy rights and in an institutional framework would be preferred for capital, uh, you know, in that new environment versus, uh, you know, countries that don't.
1: Interesting, and you know, uh, let me say that uh, a framework that I'm thinking about of this in is what I would call the currency as a release valve. Um, And by that, I mean when we're talking about uh, debasement, you know, direct monetization, uh, the interest rate isn't necessarily the release valve in the sense that the central bank can engage in yield curve control or any sort of uh, ability within its own uh, domain. To suppress uh, interest rates, you know, so-called um, financial uh, repression, but you do have the currency there, the release valve, and so in some senses, if we get to this new uh, rubric where it's a Hotel California-like scenario that you were talking about, QE became, then you have this uh, competition, this sort of race to the bottom, where. Uh, people are saying, you know, actually we can get some some juice out of our currency uh, being uh, depreciated because we're crediting accounts. Let's do that, uh, so we get the double benefit of a uh, direct injection to the places that we want the money to go, and b the release valve being the currency, and we can therefore steal growth uh, from the, the uh, from you know the global community by having a weaker currency
0: yeah I would uh, so I, I would push back a little bit. i I see exactly what you're saying with that, um, you know, as like a potential risk. And first of all, I totally agree that you know quantitative easing, uh, you know and uh, you know uh, extraordinary monetary policy is about the currency and is about you know gaining market share and uh, you know benefit from currency depreciation. but, I go back to the risk that I said that you know I believe if you get into true debasement via you know monetization that the risk of you know uh, monetary inflation getting out of control is so much uh, greater than the benefit you would get from any currency depreciation in that scenario that I I. I I would, you know, I don't think that, it, you know, that that, in my opinion, that's not the the policy prescription because of that trade off. But you did bring up, uh, you know, uh, just on the currency side. Um, I wrote a recent paper. I've been doing some thinking about, you know, the dollar's reserve currency status.
1: Right, um, that's where I was going next as well. Oh yeah,
0: all right. <laughs> Do you want me to? Uh, you
1: know, no, go, go there because, I, and I'll tell you that the way I'm thinking about it is the uh, the. Um, the Brits going hat in hand to the IMF in 1976. I'm thinking of that as sort of what happens when you lose reserve currency status, and therefore, you either have to uh, jack up your interest rates in order to attract money uh, because you know, of the currency you know, importing inflation like crazy into your economy, or uh, you go hat in hand to the IMF like the, the Brits did. I mean, that's w- what happens when you're not the world's reserve currency.
0: Right, so um, I don't think uh, we're going uh, immediately into an insolvency crisis in the U.S., and I think that's uh, you know we, we can just say that because uh, you know there's really no outstanding government liability in another currency. That being said, um, the implementation of central bank digital currencies and the the uh, the architecture that the central banks are talking about for the payment systems are first domestically focused, but then these working groups are international collaborations of central banks. So what I envision is in not the first iteration, but you know, as we start walking through time, we're going to see a system whereby the new uh, electronic payments platform that's going to be implemented across the globe by each country's central bank will all talk to each other. And... Uh, Ultimately, what that's going to do is it's going to allow countries to be able to bypass the U.S. dollar in their trade, in their international uh, transactions. So now, uh, what you're going to, I think, what we're ultimately shooting towards is a world in which countries can do bilateral, uh, you know, instantaneous, government-backed, government, uh, you know, facilitated settlement of uh, bilateral payments. Uh, between countries on more of a web like, uh, you know, on a web like infrastructure. So we're moving from the dollar being at the heart of all of the majority of global transactions. So do- the dollar, uh, the BIS said that uh, in 2019, the dollar was about 88% of one side of all currency transactions, with the number two and three being euro at like 30, 32% and yen at 17%. So the dollar, uh, remember, currency—you uh, know—is one currency versus the other. So uh, again, this is the dollar just on one side of those transactions. Is about eighty—you uh, know—about eighty-eight percent, and um, you know the other item is the current—you uh, know—global payment system that's used across the globe is SWIFT, where you know, SWIFT connects banks internationally and allows uh, international settlements. And it looks like about eighty-five percent of all international settlements. Uh, through Swift are settled, uh, you know, are, are dollar settled as well. So this gives, uh, you know, the, the dollar's weight in the global, you know, system is it, it, you know, it is roughly that. It's 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 extremely large. But when you actually look at all of, you know, what is, uh, you know, the bilateral payment structure of each individual country, it's much less. So countries right now, uh, because they know trade needs to be settled and all their international transactions need to be settled in dollars. They're hoarding dollars in you know, their FX uh, you know, reserves at the central bank, for example. And uh, you know, the dollar is the dominant uh, allocation in FX reserves. What I've just described to you is a situation where central banks now will see uh, you know the payments actually match the true balance of payments transactions. Instead of payments, the, the transactions, being a lot more uh, diverse, but the settlement being in dollars, now it's all going to be a much more diverse mix. So that's going to, you know, start to remove the need, uh, you know, for uh, banks to accumulate, uh, you know, dollars. Now the U.S. dollar. Uh, when we look at the U.S., we run a current account deficit, and right now we, uh, you know, uh, uh, also have the privilege that you know a lot of uh, central banks and and uh, you know and other individuals of recycle their savings back into U.S. assets, so they have kind of that you know global reserve asset. When that disappears, I think that you all of a sudden get the structural pressure both from you know the rebalancing of the reserves uh, from central banks, but also from the yearly flow of the negative uh, U.S. current account. Uh, you know, starts putting structural pressure on the down, uh, to the downside on the dollar. And when we think about, uh, you know, we have to think not just about the stock, uh, I'm sorry, the flow effect, but also the stock effect. And the US runs a very large negative net international investment position. And that's just a long-winded technical way of saying the majority of global savings is, uh, you know, a large portion of global savings sits in the US dollar. So not just on the official side, but on the private side as well. And when you start to see the dollar come off. I could see a lot of that savings, uh, you know, come back home and come back out. Now, this is not a tomorrow trade. We're going, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we're we're going into potentially a new era in, uh, you know, uh, lockdowns uh, because of coronavirus in Europe. Uh, there are a lot of questions, uh, you know, that are you know coming near term about this recovery. So, you know, the dollar, I think, in its current status, still will serve as a safe haven asset near term. This is a medium term structural item that we need to pay attention to that has the potential to have huge ramifications uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for dollar downside. On the flip side, too, is uh, you know, the, when countries are allowed to settle uh, you know, currencies, uh, I am sorry, uh, bilateral transactions just between each other, that gives them the, uh, you know, additional privilege that the U.S. only had and never, you know, doesn't really use. But you can print money to settle the payment if you're just a little bit short. Right. So uh, this then uh, starts to, you know, open the door to, you know, getting back to these debasement risks that you were talking about. And I think then, you know, if we kind of circle the loop back to the debasement assets. Uh, it's not only private people like uh, you know private investors who you know are wanting to think about diversifying uh, you know into into debasement assets that you know protect you against debasement like gold. It's also going to be central banks. So uh, I think that you know that's a you know another item that you know central banks may be uh, you know looking at, and we've uh, it, it basically uh, you know putting more of their reserves into gold. And interestingly, uh, the two countries who have already implemented uh, global payment systems uh, that are in competition with SWIFT are Russia and China. And what are Russia and China doing? They're increasing their allocation to the reserves in gold. So I, I think that it's, uh, you know, it, that, that's kind of a trend, I think, that is likely to continue and be accelerated, uh, you know, by uh, what's likely to come in a new global payments uh, infrastructure.
1: Right now, let me go back to the the UK and the uh, IMF and why I think that's interesting. Um, I, I, first of all, I think that you know there's a uh, chicken and egg scenario with regard to the current account deficit. That is, is, is that you know from a capital account perspective, the um, you know the bid for dollars uh, is that driving the current account, or is the current account deficit driving the capital account with regard to the US. We do know that you know there are other Anglo-Saxon countries, Australia is an example, if you look at their current account, the UK, uh, massive uh, uh, g- gaping hole in their current account relative to, say, 1980 or 1970 in, in both of those cases. Uh, when you look at the US dollar on a purchasing power parity basis, were it to uh, go down, it's at Against the Australian dollar, it's doing relatively well purchasing power-wise. It's doing relatively well against the pound, partially because of those current accounts. It's countries like the euro uh, against uh, Switzerland, where you see the biggest problems on a purchasing power parity basis, where I could see the dollar going down. Now, let's just say that the dollar does go down as a result of the move to bilateral uh, uh, settlements of accounts. At that point, uh, suddenly, uh, the US uh, people who are have this massive current account deficit are importing goods uh, that are in currencies that are appreciated against the US dollar, and therefore, we're importing a massive amount of inflation into the US system. This is what happened to the, uh, the Brits in the 70s. And at some point, they were forced to say, wait a minute, okay. Either we jack up interest rates uh, in order to, uh, you know, get our currency up and stop this inflation from being imported, or, uh, you know, w- we we have to figure out some other way to get out of this problem because it's killing our economy. And in their case, they decided that they would go to the IMF to help relieve them of the of, of the of the problem, and that's what precipitated their their crisis. But you know they did have yeah. the degree of freedom they could have allowed it to continue to roll, but unfortunately, you know they just felt wedged in by uh, the implication of massive amounts of unemployment that would result sure. from the crackdown on on interest rates. So. Uh, it I-
0: All all points well taken, and I just point out sequencing to you that, uh, you know, ultimately, we may get into the scenario that you're talking about. But near term, uh, you know, I think that the if you well, not near term, but the the, in the initial phases of this, given the large stock of, uh, you know, foreign savings in the U.S., the the capital account outflows are, you know, going to overwhelm, uh, you know, on the currency you know, on the currency side, you know, f- full stop. And uh, you know, I think that importing inflation at a time too when potentially policy is starting to stimulate inflation, uh, you know, causing the need to you know rethink what is the interest rate policy. Uh, you know, is going to be uh, you know that that uh, that is going to be uh, a, a big discussion because uh, in the scenario that we just laid out. Growth is also going to be challenged. So you could be in the middle of, you know, a true deflationary shock. When you know, I guess you would be. Uh, what you're arguing is now you're going to need to support the currency. You're going to have to, uh, you know, let rates back up aggressively, and that's going to take a sea change, uh, you know, in policy. I think that um, again, I I, I think. The end state is going to be, uh, you know, an equilibrium is going to be found because, uh, you know, as you know, with the balance of payments and currencies, it's a, it's a relative value game. So, where, it, you know, where one flow is going, uh, you know, it's coming out of somewhere else and vice versa. So, uh, again, on this relative value basis, the sequencing of it to me seems that the first sequence would be dollar lower. Uh, and then you're going to have, uh, you know, we, I think we have to look at at that point, what are the initial conditions, uh, you know, in the global economy, if the United States is in like the, the, you know, the worst position possible, basically, it has slow growth, it's importing inflation, and there's nothing it can do to stop its currency devaluation, except hike rates, uh, that, that's going to be devastating. And uh, you know, but that would be in a scenario whereby the rest of the world is actually uh, you know still doing relatively well compared to the U.S. So I don't think that you know that type of delinkage would happen immediately. It's definitely an interesting thought. For uh, I think that's a maybe a few steps uh, past uh, you know what I had initially written about. Uh, but you you definitely give us a lot of uh, give, you know especially give me a lot of food for thought about. You know, how that final system, you know, where the equilibrium would actually be., um, right. yeah.
1: you know what the what the end game might be down the line because obviously the uh, British pound uh, was in decline for quite some time before it came to that point. Uh, and, you know, it was really a thirty year march from uh, the uh, a massive amount of deficit spending that they did in World War two to right. the period where, you know, they had the IMF problem in 1976.
0: Absolutely, and yeah, past might be prologue for <laughs> what's happening to the to the world's new reserve currency.
1: So, um, you know, this has been pretty fascinating. I, I want to get from you your sort of final thoughts, just from a you know near term actionable thinking, uh, both developed market and emerging market. Both currency and uh, bond. You know how this. uh, You know what are the considerations that you're making as a portfolio manager?
0: Right. So, uh, as I said, I think that you know when this airs, I think we'll be through the election. So that's uh, you know one uh, big piece of uncertainty that uh, we we maybe have to come back and revisit. But what's not uncertain is. The fact that we're seeing rising, uh, you know, economic shutdowns, especially in Europe, and uh, you know, it, I'm worried that with uh, you know the increasing uh, COVID cases in the U.S., uh, that we could see it in you know another uh, engine of domestic growth. So, uh, given the the given the fact that, and I, and I know this might be kind of boring, but we've seen uh, you know risk assets, uh, you know. Uh, appreciate since March, but it's not only been on the back of policy, it's also been on, you know, now there's expectation that, you know, there are certain uh, assumptions to, you know, the path of global growth, which don't appear, which appear maybe are going to be optimistic even in these, you know, two year out scenarios. I think those will have to be revised down. So, uh, you know, we're much more defensive near term because of you know, these building risks versus uh, valuations that we think, uh, you know, may be discounting, uh, you know, a little too much at, at the time, you know, for the time being. So immediate actionable items, uh, you know, I think where, well, uh, you know, the interesting places, again, are the government bond curves where central banks haven't quite gone negative yet. So Austri- like looking at uh, duration in Australia and New Zealand, I think even the UK is interesting, especially if they have a little bit I, I think a messy Brexit would be best for uh, the long end of the UKT because uh, that way you would actually have the central bank implement negative policy rates, which you know might give you a little bit of juice, uh, you know, on that trade. I think on the currency side we have to be very careful. I still think the yen, which, by the way, I'll, I'll take one, uh, you know, one, 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 just brief aside here. Uh, I, I like the allocation to the yen on the risk-off uh, you know, property that it has, and it is one of the few, uh, you know, assets out there that you can start to think about. in you know, a vol shock, you know, would provide, a, you know, some of that offset, uh, you know, that, that you're looking for in, you know, the 60/40 reallocation. We're, I, I think, the near term uh, to, uh, you know, most emerging market currencies. Uh, is a bit lower. But uh, if we can get through the election and, uh, you know, get through, uh, you know, a little bit of, a you know, uh, a, you get through a risk hurdle uh, and uh, a growth hurdle in the near term, I think, you know, you're still going to have interesting plays in Mexico, you're going to have interesting, uh, you know, plays elsewhere, uh, where the higher, uh, you know, these, these kind of higher beta, uh, you know, still liquid uh, emerging market countries uh, can no longer be viewed in a basket. But, you um, The the ones that we you know are are kind of interested right now in watching we have not gone into them uh, but would be uh, you know Mexico and Russia uh, you know uh, for a potential entry point after um, you know we we get a little bit of spike in volatility
1: and how much of uh, the differential in COVID outcomes uh, in the emerging markets uh, has any relevance for you because you know East Asia in particular. Uh, they've been outperforming, uh, relative to Latin America or Eastern Europe, for example.
0: Yeah, and we're we're favoring it, no, exactly. So we're we're actually, uh, you know, in in Latin America, we're much more defensively positioned. We you know have uh, in our you know we have in our local exposures. Uh, you know, we do have uh, you know full allocations across you know uh, across East Asia, Malaysia. Philippines, uh, you know, even though, uh, and th- we are not quite going. We haven't gone into China yet. I know there's a you know a lot of excitement, uh, you know, about China and China being potentially a safe asset. I still get concerned that you know uh, the authorities, although they appear to be liberalizing a little bit more, I want to see a true test case of that before I put uh, you know any investor money to risk, uh, you know, in China. But absolutely, uh, you know, uh, Asia, it's not only uh, the COVID outcomes, but it's actually their linkages to, uh, you know, the supply chains that are more technology linked. So, uh, you know, when we're looking at, you know, the Asian, uh, in a lot of the Asian strength, you know, not only have they been able to get COVID under control, they've also, uh, you know, been linked to, uh, you know, this recent demand for both technology and, uh, you know, healthcare uh, equipment.
1: Excellent. Uh, Bill, we had to get that little uh, extra juice out of you at the end. I really appreciate that. I mean, some great deep thinking in this. uh, And please promise to come back so we can uh, revisit with uh, either your your market ideas or some of the deep thoughts you have on digital currency and other places.
0: You're great. Thank you. I'd love to. And thank you uh, for having me on again. It's uh, always a fun conversation.
1: Yes, definitely.